Natalie Haynes has written books on Greek and Roman civilization, but she's also a stand-up comedian. Natalie talks to Michael Barclay about some of her enthusiasms, which include music and running. Just like the ancient Greek dramatists she so loves, Natalie Haynes excels in both tragedy and comedy. She's written three novels which retell stories from Greek myth. A spoiler alert here, they rarely end well. And she's had a long-running parallel career as a stand-up comedian. Radio 4 listeners will be familiar with her hugely popular series, Natalie Haynes Stands Up. For the classics. Central to all her work is her focus on the much neglected stories of women in the ancient world and particularly in Greek myth. But first, one of the best love pieces inspired by a classical story Dido's Lament from Purcell's Dido and Aeneas. This story and this music has a very contemporary, heartbreaking quality, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Um, I mean, I, I suppose I should start by confessing that Dido, who doesn't come from Greek myth, um, but obviously gets um, put into, I suppose, the Aeneid by Virgil, she's nonetheless my gateway drug to Greek myth. There are two. We'll come to the second in a moment. Um, mm. But book four of the Aeneid was my, I think, A-level set text, book two for GCSE. And book two is great. That's the fall of the city. But book four and the story of Dido... It is just the most extraordinary thing to read. You know, Virgil is so beautiful in English and in Latin, I think. He's been very beautifully translated over the years, most recently by Shadi Barch. And the story of Dido is, it, it feels like it, it's just come out of nowhere almost. You know, Aeneas is not the lead role in book four of the Aeneid. Dido has the most to say. She has by far the most dialogue. I kind of, it, it tricked me, as did the next one we'll talk about, into thinking that women were always at the centre of the story and that this would be my classical existence um, thenceforth. There's so much going on here musically too, isn't there, which makes it almost have the quality of, of a pop song. There's the descending ground bass, there's the word painting of the body being laid in earth and that marvellous use of the motif for Remember Me. Yes, I mean, I don't think it's an accident that this piece was chosen really appropriately um, for a memorial for the victims of Grenfell who died very near to where I'm currently recording i again saw the the ruin of the tower block as i came here today and it, it's that thing where you go that's so appropriate and at the same time it it could never be enough you know and yet if you have to make some kind of public statement about what's been lost i'm not sure i can think of a more appropriate piece to choose
Joyce Di Donato with Dido's Lament from Purcell's Dido Ananias. Maxim Emelianichev conducted Il Pomodoro. You grew up in Birmingham, Natalie Haynes, the daughter of teachers, and, as you said, you fell in love with classics as a teenager. You were able to study Greek, Latin and ancient history at A-level, but that's not an option for most children today, is it? No, I feel very strongly about this. I don't demand that everybody is you know, forced to sit there and, and chant verb endings. I, I mean, I, I want to demand that, but even I know that I'm onto a losing streak. But I feel very strongly that all students should have access to classics if they would like it. And it pains me greatly that that's largely not the case. I understand that the national curriculum is, you know, groaning at the seams, is so packed, and teachers are doing an extraordinary job of trying to keep their students afloat at the moment, quite aside from um, educating them, uh, which is their actual job. We sometimes have to remind ourselves. And yet it, it kind of cracks my heart that so much of classics scholarship is now focused on people whose parents can pay for their education. Um, there's a huge enthusiasm for classical civilization, i.e. classics in translation in state schools, which is wonderful um, and a really, really great development that lots of classics departments at universities are now doing Latin and or Greek from scratch at degree level so that you can have studied class civ and then go to university and, and get your Latin and Greek a little bit later, which must be an enormous amount of work. So 85,000 points to all the students doing that, just <laughs> FYI. But it's not good enough to me that Latin is withheld, really, from the vast majority of students who go to state schools. Do you have any sense of what ancient Greek or Roman music might have sounded like? Yeah, we have some ideas. You can see pictures of like a, a, a on vase paintings of sort of like a double set of panpipes is probably what we would call a flute when we translate it but they look more like pipes I guess than a, a flute the kind that I played so fluently Michael <laughs> um, and so yeah we can get an idea. Interestingly the music that you've chosen to take us back to the ancient world is by Ennio Morricone. I'm quirky that way. I, I don't know if you saw this coming. Yeah, I was thinking a lot about uh, Orpheus and Eurydice uh, and part of it made me think it's so remarkable that we have these accounts in Virgil and in Ovid of music so beautiful that it made the dead weep. I think that the Gabriel's oboe theme from The Mission, which is such a an odd film for me to choose given that I'm an atheist and <laughs> the film is about religion. I can't help it. Morricone just does that, doesn't he? He sneaks through and when you're all psychologically prepared for something, he smacks you around the kisser with something else. And so I think this is what it sounds like when you play something so beautiful that the dead would flock from across Hades to hear it.
Paul Bateman was conducting the City of Prague Philharmonic in Gabriel's oboe from Ennio Morricone's soundtrack to The Mission. I know you have another passion apart from classics, and that is running. Yes, I'm a very keen runner. I've skipped running to come and talk to you today, and I, I can't pretend it hasn't left me feeling slightly off kilter. I'm like, oh, should I run when I get back? Is it too late to run then? Should I eat and then run? Should I run? And that, that's basically my whole head. The whole time I'm not working is trying to fit my running schedule around work. Um, but it's not uh, just me that has been a bit of a problem for your running, is it? Because you had long COVID. Oh, am I going to talk about this on the record? Oh, OK. Um, <laughs> yes, well, that's true. I mean, what did it do to you? I think it's interesting for people to hear different experiences. Uh, it left me unable to run for a, a while last summer, for a couple of months, and my pace is still terrible because I still get relapses of long COVID where I feel very, very tired, very, very sick, and my headaches are, oh, they are, you know, newsworthy in their mm. proportions and longevity. And it's really boring, and it just is what it is, I suppose. And so last summer, I couldn't really run at all. I mean, my head was... I felt like my brain was trying to push out past my teeth. It was really grim. Mm. Um, and then very gradually, I missed it so much. You know, I, I could. there were days when walking was hard and I do a lot of miles in an average year. Um, I'm a very keen walker and runner, so it's not unusual at all for me to do three and a half thousand miles on foot in a year and I certainly won't be anything like that this year because there were days when just walking five miles, which is my minimum requirement, felt like a a horrific struggle. It felt like I was going to have to bend down and drag one leg after the other in order to get around the park. And it's been a really dull process of rebuilding. One of the things that I, I find fascinating, and I speak of somebody who's lucky enough to live on the Welsh marches and walks, you know, five or six miles every day, but is possibly for somebody whose brain works as fast as yours, the, the kind of space it gives, which is so important, I mean, you can think about your life, you can think about what you're doing, you can think about your work. It, it, it's kind of a, a lifeline, isn't it, uh, walking and running? Yeah, they serve different functions for me. So if I'm feeling really stressed or worried about a piece of work or I can't fix a piece of work, you know, I don't know what comes next, then a walk will do that. But that doesn't resolve the, the kind of... The sort of there's a sort of high-pitched buzzing sound that, that is operating in my brain at all times. And walking is not enough to fix that, but running is. And and I never I'm never creative when I'm running because honestly, I'm quite clumsy and my feet are quite big. So I have to concentrate quite hard just on not tripping myself up. And so I'm not thinking about anything really when I run apart from the act of running and that's an incredibly valuable thing if you have a sort of busy squirrel brain that tends to just run from corner to corner to corner going but what about this but what about this but what about this but what about this like all of that is true brain let's go for a run and shut up <laughs> so that that was the thing I really missed last summer it's it's been a real effort to get it back but it's been really worth it
breathe new life into my willing soul. Bring the presence of the risen Lord to renew my heart and make me whole. Cause your word to For your purity, Holy Spirit, breathe new life in me.
Ian Rose of Soundwaves Radio in Sussex shares some of his programmes with us. Today we hear Ian introduce Dr Tim Carter with his thoughts about harvest. I have with me now the Reverend Dr Tim Carter and I said here may a two-minute challenge to give his thoughts on harvest. Tim, your two minutes starts now. Firstly, harvest reminds me of my connectedness to the rest of the world. So when I buy fairly traded goods, I can be sure I'm not exploiting vulnerable farmers the other side of the globe. We think of fair trade as a modern phenomenon, but I watched the film Amazing Grace for the first time the other night, and it makes the point that at the start of the 19th century, there were people who stopped putting sugar in their tea because it was produced by slaves, and some shops began to say they would only sell sugar that was produced by free workers. Harvest reminds us of our ethical connections with the people who produce what we consume. Secondly, Harvest reminds us of our connectedness with nature itself. Back in the spring, I did a children's talk at church and used a sprouting potato, saying it didn't look very appetising, but that was what potatoes are supposed to do. Well, one young boy took my potato home with him, planted it, and last weekend delivered to me a crop of potatoes his mum had grown in their garden from my one sprouting spud. And they didn't come ready washed and polythene wrapped. They came in a carrier bag still with fresh earth attached to them. I think the way in which everything we buy from the supermarket is smothered in polythene expresses our alienation from the earth that produces our crops. Harvest puts us back in touch with nature again. And that can help put us in touch with God, our creator, as well. I'm well aware that Stephen Hawking has said that science has dispensed with our need of God. I'm no physicist, so I can't debate with with him at that level. But one of the things that amazes me about nature is its gratuitous beauty. There are times when we all see something in the natural world that makes us stop and go, wow. And if you believe in God, you can appreciate that things are beautiful because God made them that way, so that he can delight in them, and so can we. That for me explains why so much of what we see is beautiful rather than just being purely functional. In the post-war years in Britain, a lot of architecture was purely functional, and frankly it was soul-destroying. As people we need beauty to flourish, And that's something of what it means for us to be made in the image of God. At harvest time, then, we can remember all these different connections and celebrate the way in which all good things around us are sent from heaven above. And then our right response is to thank the Lord. Yes, thank the Lord for all his love.
Sorensen is Church of Scotland Minister in Greenock. Alan is a regular contributor to Pause for Thought on Radio 2. Alan has given us permission to broadcast some of his shorter God Spots, and today he has one on long life and happiness. Okay, own up. How many times have you wished somebody long life and happiness or something similar, eh? Funny that, everybody wants to live a long time, but nobody wants to be old. Have you ever noticed you're never old in your dreams, are you? Uh, mind you, let's be honest here, I suppose being old is a bit better than the alternative, which is being dead. Now I dare say that today you might have to choose between two things, neither of which seems particularly good. Well, Jesus had to choose between letting God down or being crucified. Not an easy call, is it? But he trusted God, and the resurrection shows that even the worst can turn out great. Trust him. Toodaloo the new. Larry Gentis has produced a series of talks for us where he imagines himself to be a Bible character. Today he takes on the role of the teacher, Gamaliel. My students are important to me. There is no greater responsibility than influencing young minds at the beginning stages of their lives, bringing to light the sacred scriptures handed down to us by God through the centuries. I enjoy the research involved as well and never go into a lesson at the madrasa without being thoroughly prepared. My name is Gamaliel, which means God is my reward, and truly he is. I'm the leader of the most prestigious rabbinical school in Israel. I adhere to the strictest interpretation of the pharisaic branch of our Jewish faith. You see, there's another, shall we say, persuasion of Judaism called the Sadducees, and they don't believe in supernatural occurrences such as angels and contemporary miracles. 
This obviously goes contrary to the scriptures. I can see you're not from here, so before I tell you this story, I'll have to fill you in on what's happening in these parts. There was a man from Nazareth named Jesus, and what he was reputed to be doing, what I can only qualify as extraordinary. There were reports of lepers being cleansed, blind people receiving their sight, people with uneven arms and legs miraculously having them stretched to their proper size, and even raising the dead, not only once. The question is, do I believe these stories? As you could ascertain by the description of our school and my direction of it, I take no events as truth unless I am a witness to the facts. Well, that said, there was a blind man named Bartimaeus who presented himself before the ruling council. Apparently, he'd been blind all his life, and when Jesus came, he opened them for the first time in his life. It was proven beyond any doubt that these things happened just as he said by his parents and people from the crowds who witnessed this. Then there was Lazarus, who was presumably raised from the dead, but we couldn't interview him in the council because he was afraid he'd be persecuted, as Bartimaeus was, so he hid himself. There were many on the ruling council who wanted to be rid of this prophet from Galilee because he was drawing multitudes of people who no longer listened to us as their leaders. They were jealous, seeing opposition to their positions of power, so they fabricated false charges against him and had him crucified, thinking, well, that was the end of it. However, Jesus gave a prophecy saying that he was going to be raised from the dead after three days, and after the three days in the tomb, he was nowhere to be found. His disciples claimed they'd seen him and been with him. So the disciples of Jesus have started a whole new set of doctrines, claiming that this Jesus was the Son of God and his Messiah. They made their case before the crowds with justifications from the Torah. And to be fair, they weren't far-fetched or frivolous as I'd expected. So I was cautiously waiting for more evidence to come to light. On a certain day, the disciples of Jesus were arrested by the authorities for teaching things that the ruling council were against and wanted to have them stoned to death. I always felt as if I hadn't stood up to defend the rights of Jesus some weeks ago, even if I didn't agree with him. So this time, I did. And here's what I said. Um, men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Theudas rose up claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case... I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is from God, you will not be able to overthrow them. Or else you may even be found fighting against God. After I spoke, the council followed my advice, released these men after having them flogged. I must say it was amazing to see them after the punishment, as they weren't weeping with pain, as I'd seen so many times before, but were rejoicing that they were allowed to suffer in the name of Jesus. 
Now, I suppose I shouldn't be surprised because everything about this Jesus has gone contrary to the way normal people do things. Well, it's oh, it's been nice speaking with you, but I've got to go now. There's a class I'm about to teach on some fascinating parts of Isaiah where he writes prophetically about a man who will be the Messiah, but maybe not someone we'd think of as a saviour. I keep thinking about my best student, whose zeal and knowledge is well beyond the other students. He's from Tarshish. He's named Saul. I have very great hopes for him. This comes from Acts 5, verses 17 to 41. Sowing in the morning, sowing seeds of kindness, sowing in the noontide and the dewy eve. Waiting for the harvest and the time of reaping, we shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. Bringing in the sheaves, we're bringing in the sheaves. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. Bringing in the sheaves, we're bringing in the sheaves. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. Sowing in the sunshine, sowing in the shadows, fearing neither clouds nor winter's chilling breeze. By and by the harvest and the labour ended, we shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. Bringing in the sheaves, we're bringing in the sheaves. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. Bringing in the sheaves, we're bringing in the sheaves. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. Go then ever weeping, sowing for the master. Though the loss sustained, our spirit often grieves. When our weeping's ended, he will bid us welcome. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. Bringing in the sheaves, we're bringing in the sheaves. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. Bringing in the sheaves, we're bringing in the sheaves. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. We're bringing in the sheaves, we're bringing in the sheaves. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. Bringing in the sheaves, we're bringing in the sheaves. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. Creation sings the Father's song. He calls the sun to wake the dawn. In round the course of day Till evening falls in crimson rays His fingerprints and flakes of snow His breath upon the spinning globe He charts the eagle's flight Commands the newborn baby's cry
compassion gazed upon his face. The ageless one in times and praise unveiled the Father's plan of reconciling God and man. The second Adam walked the earth, whose blameless life would break the curse, whose death would set us free to live with him eternally. longs for his return when Christ shall reign upon the earth the bitter wars that rage our birth pains of a coming age when he renews the land and sky all heaven will sing a 